Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. My name's Dave. We're going to jump into the scriptures. Who's excited to jump into the scriptures? Yes. Oh, that's good. That's pretty good. Because we literally are today. Like, like if you've been around for just a little bit, uh, you know, we kind of have a spiritual diet over the years. So sometimes we dig in to a portion of scripture intensively. Sometimes we kind of hit like a practical topical series. Uh, sometimes like we just finished one last week or the week before this theme of renewal. And today we jump into like, um, yeah, a little bit of, little bit of, uh, of uh, what's the word? Treacherous ground in scripture. We'll see what it is. But let me, let me start this way. If you have watched sitcoms ever in your lifetime, whether it was the 80s, 90s, 2000s, even recently, even Disney sitcoms, at least once in like the life of that sitcom or a season, there's usually one of those chaotic moments where chaos breaks out, like it's either a food fight or there's a party that runs wild or like a water main breaks or a project collapses and then the mature person in the room kind of walks in and everybody stops and looks and that person is like, what is going on? Like, what's happening? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? It's been in, like, I think it's been in every sitcom. It's a story they keep repeating. And a famous author, her name is Annie Dillard. She has a profound theological question when she looks in the world, at the world, and her question is, what in Sam Hill is going on here? That's her, her question. It's a little bit of her accent and use of language, but I love it. And she is not the first person, and you and I are not the first person to seek answers or meaning when we look at history, when we look at the world, when we look at life, when we look at suffering or struggle. And uh, earlier this year, we, we uh, decided to jump into, slowly jump into the book of Revelation, and we had a series back in the winter and the spring. And the book of Revelation is one of those messages in Scripture that we would call a prophetic message. And it was a prophetic message to the first, uh, yeah, this is the one that we're walking through today. Um, A prophetic message that we walked through, you know, that really for the churches of the time and then for Christians over centuries. But in that first century, they were trying to make sense. They were trying to make sense as they struggled with what it meant to follow Jesus in the empire, the Roman Empire, that made it very hard to do so. And they were looking for hopeful meaning in the middle of their struggle. So back in the winter, you can go back a couple, we did flickering light lampstands, and we looked at the seven churches that John addresses in this letter. And uh, then after Easter, we did a series called Grounded Above, where we were trying to ground ourselves in the worship and wisdom and values of heaven that we see in chapters four and five. And today we kick off something called Standing Through. And we're going to try over five weeks, uh, because there's a lot of repetition in the next few chapters, to kind of like cover uh, Revelation 6 to 20. And so that's why I said we're kind of like on treacherous ground. This is going to be like an interesting few weeks for us. And and like I told you, if you just, you know, connected with our church in the last month, we don't always jump in the book of Revelation for five weeks. In fact, it's the first time we do it in... 19 years. Um, so, so, you know, it's, it's something that we're treading in. But when someone, like, when someone reads the book of Revelation and when this prophetic message went to these first seven churches, they were trying to make sense of the world. And they were asking, what in Sam Hill is going on in our world? What's going on in the empire? What's happening as we follow Jesus? And Revelation 6 to 20 gives us a lens. So we're going to read um, this dramatic portion here, uh, chapter 6, together. 
And I thought it'd be great if we read it together because, you know, some of us are not familiar with the kind of genre or language that Revelation uses. It's apocalyptic literature. It's not straight speaking or straight teaching. It's very imaginative. And so so here we go, chapter 6, okay? Um, Then I saw the Lamb, referring to Jesus, open one of the seven seals. And just pause here. I'll come back to this. But we want to understand that this is coming from the previous chapter where we see this vision in heaven and people are wondering what's going to happen? How, how is history going to unfold? What's going on? And who's going to open the scroll of, of history? And finally, the Lamb of God opens the scroll. And here we find this scene. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures call out as with a voice of thunder, come. And I looked and there was a white horse and its rider had a bow. A crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature call out, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would would slaughter one another. And he was given a great sword. I told you, it's getting interesting. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature call out, Come. And I looked, and there was a black horse. And its rider held a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat, of wheat for a day's pay and three quarts of barley for a day's pay. But do not damage the olive and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the, the voice of the fourth living creature call out, Come. I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, and pestilence, and by the wild animals of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. And they cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? They were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number would be complete, both of their fellow servants and of their brothers and sisters who were soon to be killed as they themselves have been killed. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and there came a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The moon, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree drops its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a, scrolling, like a scroll rolling itself up and every mountain and island was removed from its place and then the kings of the earth and the magnates and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks fall on us. And hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? i got to pray before we continue. Let's do this. Lord, um, what a fascinating, um, dramatic piece of Scripture we have here. And we just humbly come before it and before you. Um, and may we hear your voice uh, calling out to us and what it means to live in our world today. We thank you, God, for opportunities like this to engage scriptures like this periodically. And we just trust your your work among us today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Man, wasn't that crazy? Like, this was Lord of the Rings stuff right here. I mean, now, this is important. I would encourage you never to read Revelation 6 to 20 if you haven't read Revelation 1 to 5. I would encourage you never to read Revelation 6 to 20 if you don't read Revelation 21 and 22. Because 20% of Revelation is written before the question of evil ever comes up. 
right? The first five chapters help draw us to Jesus, give us the foundation of who Jesus is, who sits on the throne, um, the call to those seven churches at the time that John is writing, because the purpose is to work through evil in the world. We must get through Jesus first. Otherwise, we look at it with the wrong lens. And so I really encourage you, go back and read chapters 1 to 5 or go back and listen to our messages back in the winter and spring of this year. But let's be honest, we're entering a very strange piece of Scripture. You know, I've read it several times, but reading it out loud among us was like, I, I was almost feeling like, should I hold back? There's a lot in there. Christians have struggled with texts like this and what happens over the next several chapters in Revelation for centuries. Martin Luther, in the 15th century, he suggested we would avoid these passages of Scripture and Revelation. He thought they had no discipleship value. He thought, what's the point of reading this or teaching it? Because there's no, it's not giving us any value in what it means to follow Jesus today. And so he actually suggested at some point in his life that we avoid it. One reason is when people started getting onto looking for predictions and timelines in these texts, it often left them dry for what it meant to live today or in their present time period. Now, if you're just looking for headlines, if you're looking to match what we read here with something in the headlines, then you're going to find some of those things. But if you're looking to, for those headlines, it's sometimes harder to find what it means to follow Jesus today. And so we, back in the spring and, and the winter, I suggested we take a pastoral prophetic approach to this book and not a predictive approach. Those are two different ways. Prophetic, pastoral versus predictive. And why I had encouraged that we move this in this direction is not because there's absolutely nothing in this letter for some future time, but because John writes this letter as a pastor to first century churches to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in their time. That's pastoral, and that's prophetic in a sense, God's word to them in their time and God's word to us in our time, and especially as they would struggle and we would struggle to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't follow Jesus. So it's pastoral and prophetic. That's our approach. And I'm, I'm not taking a literal or linear approach. In other words, I, once we leave today, don't, go, don't search the Internet for green horses. You know, like, what is a green, where's a green horse today? What does it mean? And, and all that kind of stuff. Don't start trying to match political events with what happened in this vision. One New Testament scholar, Craig Coster, says this. He says, predictions aren't the right word here because it doesn't fall neatly into a timeline. And, and I, I discovered this the last several times I've read Revelation over the last years, especially over COVID, as people were like, is the book of Revelation very relevant today? And I started to see how it was really one big picture that you can look at it as, and not necessarily just one set of things going on. So not literal or linear, but a whole big picture. And here's why. We said this back in the winter, right? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the apocalypse, apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And the word apocalypse means an unveiling. We love to use that word for crazy things that happen in our world. But what apocalyptic literature does is it surprises us so much and it kind of tears the veil across and says, look what's going on behind the surface. Look what's really happening in our world. Look at what's driving our world. Look at what's driving your life. And so all these incredible images that we just even read, they're apocalyptic in a way that they want us to kind of like rip the curtain across and say, what's, what's going on here? What's, what's at work here? What's happening under the surface here? What's happening in people's lives? 
And what is God doing about it? And where's Jesus in the middle of this? And so that's really important that when we read a book like Revelation, we understand what apocalypse means. It means an unveiling. And that's what was meant for those churches, that they could stop and say, oh, this is really what's going on behind the curtain. And so this last question in chapter 6 is really important for us. The question at the end of that sixth seal is who, they ask, who will stand? Who can stand in the middle of this chaos? Who can stand in the middle of some of the struggles that go on in our world, whether they're really, really bad or even tame in some, of our, some seasons of life? And so that's a clue to this section, chapter 6 and 7. Who can stand? And so John opens it up, and, and, and he, he, he lists these seals that, that are being unfolded that he's, he's dramatically trying to help us understand. And it opens up John's imagination in what he sees and hears in this dramatic unfolding of events meant to prophetically pastor a church initially in the first century, but also today through the tensions of our world. Because remember, small churches, they were like a blip in the Roman Empire the churches that in Revelation were God's mustard seed kingdom in a huge world that wasn't reflecting God's heart. And Jesus sees them, and Jesus loves them, and Jesus leads them. And even us, when we feel like a blip in the middle of our world, Jesus sees us, Jesus loves us, Jesus wants to lead us. And these seven seals do an incredible job of unveiling what history looks like between the first and second coming of Jesus, between the season we're living in still now, 2,000 years later, and we don't know how much longer that will be, but it's between the cross and new creation. It's between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. And it's as though John has, in this moment, a seven-point sermon from Jesus to the church in Lord of the Rings fashion. That's, you know, it's like if, if, if I would come up and kind of like preach with dramatic imagination and kind of paint the picture that way, because there is a message on the side. There's a message to Lord of the Rings that's not just about horses and spears and fire. There's a message behind it of the hunger for power in the ring and the hunger for power in our world, right? Like, it's not just all the stuff you see, but behind the scenes of Lord of the Rings, there's a message. Behind the scenes of this dramatic unfolding is a message. N.T. Wright likes to call it the sevenfold reality. Eugene Peterson likes to call it a set of musical notes. And if you know anything about music, one note is a single melody, but two notes create a harmony. And three notes create a triad. And four notes create a chord. And in jazz, you can start adding like seven notes or whatever, right? And so I want you to imagine that what we're reading here in these seals is like, here's one line of music, here's a second line of music, here's a third line, here's a fourth, here's a fifth, here's a sixth. And all together, boom, they play this big chord. That's not always like we like to say, what happens first, what happens next, what happens after that. But here's this big chord that, bang, gets played. And... The people reading it, even John, is just like wake, woken up at that moment to what is really going on around them. And those first four seals are the ones that get the most popular attention in our world, the four horsemen. You can just Google that and you'll find tons of stuff about the four horsemen. At the heart of it, it's evil at its worst work in our world. The four horsemen are evil at its worst in our world. And while I would attest that, you know, affirm that this is also part of God's judgment for the world, we might say this is purely judgment from heaven, but it's equally humanity collaborating and imploding on itself. 
It's equally humanity collaborating with evil powers and systems at work and colliding on itself. Sometimes we say God judges us, and sometimes say, God judges us by saying, you want to be so consumeristic? Be so, be so consumeristic that you implode on yourself. Be so greedy that you implode on yourself. Be so violent that you actually become so violent that you, you experience death, where the systems implode on us. And the result is not surprising. Those four horsemen, conquest, war, famine, death, there's a painting, maybe I'll share it later this week. I should have brought it on the screen this today, but just a beautiful, not beautiful, uh, a fascinating painting depicting these four horsemen on the horses and what they, what they reflect. But if you think about conquest, the white horse is the human desire to rule and to dominate and to accomplish, and usually at the expense of other people, usually at the expense of another person or another nation. Some, some scholars like to look at this white horse maybe as Jesus leading the charge, and it's tough because it doesn't seem like Jesus would sit on any of these horses. And the reason why scholars look at that is because later in Revelation 19, he actually comes on a white horse imaginatively as, you know, judging the world. But here we can see that this is conquest, this human desire to rule and dominate. The, the red horse is war, where there's social evil, the, the black horse is famine where there's economic and ecological evil. The, 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 the green horse is death where there's biological evil. Just stop for a second. This is how the world works at times. We don't want to, you know, we can be covered by this with some of our economic uh, security, some of our democratic security, some of the ways certain parts of our world function. But I remember a friend telling me once, Take everybody's money away and see how long it takes for us to get to anarchy. There, there's, this is partly how the world works. Just consider war for a second, the basic nature of humanity. Eugene Peterson says it's to be human is to be at war. War is destroying so you can win, killing so you can live, crushing so you can win the competition. Isn't that war? When you think of most wars in our world, most wars attempt to win, but they destroy while they're doing that. They want to live, but they kill while they do that. They want to win the competition, but they crush along the way. It's part of the hunger for conquest, for resources, for superiority. I know you guys, we can play the game Settlers of Catan, but in the real world, in the real world somebody loses. In the real world, one of those countries die. In the real world, there's casualties, right? And so... I'm not saying you can't play Settlers of Content. I'm just saying that when you really put it together, that's the hunger for conquest. Consider famine for a second. There's probably more than enough food in our world for everybody. I bet you if we kind of like analyzed all the bacon in Walmart's warehouses, it could feed the world, probably. Probably could feed the world. But yet it's so, you know, but yet global villages go hungry. And people drop two, three hundred dollars on drinks after hours, but some homes struggle for cereal. Famine comes from two predominantly, two things primarily, economic disparity and ecological disaster. When economic disparity happens, the, there's a widening gap between the rich and the poor. There are people who are, who are starving, but there's people who are just, you know, drinking up the luxury. Isn't it interesting that in this seal with the, with the horse, with the black horse and famine, 
I think it said something like this. A quart of wheat for a day's pay and three quarts of barley for a day's pay, but do not damage the olive oil in the wine. The luxury items were okay. It was the bare necessities that were not possible. There's always going to be disparity, economic disparity, and then ecological disaster. And we're not going to go into each of them because it could be like a whole talk on each of these you know, four horsemen. But there, what, what, what's happening here? It's this picture to the church and to us to make sure there is no illusion among us about there being evil in our world. That we have no illusion that there's evil in our world. There is. In God's judgment and justice, his wrath is against this. And he primarily allows human agency, people themselves, to... They destroy themselves. Human action brings this about. At some point, God will deal and judge with finality. But in this moment, he, you can see that there's some human cooperation here. One author, Michael Gorman, a great book on Revelation, he says, when humans reject lamb power, or the power of the lamb, the power of Jesus, when humans reject lamb power, they experience it as imperial disaster, disordered desires, death, and destruction. Lamb power is the way of Jesus. It's what we read in chapters 4 and 5. Another, back to that author, Coaster, he says this, the horsemen are designed to shatter any illusion that people can find true security in the borders, empires, flourishing economy, or on their own health. It's, it's not this idea that, that in seasons of our life, in moments of our life, that, that these things don't help us at times, but the four horsemen are there designed to help just shatter this idea that the ultimate security is found in these things. And when you think about modern life, modern life for us, modernity in Western civilization is 200, 250 years old now, from the 18th century to today. And ultimately, through education, through intellect, through innovation, through tech, uh, through philosophy, through all these circles, the modern world has tried to create a perfect and painless life. It's true. It's a perfect and painless life. That's what, what modernity is trying to create. And yet, isn't it amazing that in the middle of 200, 250 years of modernity growing, of innovation happening, of tech being so incredible, we can get to the, to the moon, and now, you know, people are actually taking personal rocket trips up. You know, William Shatner just talked about his experience, and other people are doing that. The modern world is amazing, but we can't seem to shake the four horsemen. We can't seem to shake the four horsemen throughout history. Probably because even we are hungry for all of them in our own human nature in some way to use a little bit of glimpse of that when necessary. The 20th century was one of the bloodiest centuries in history. Just in the last 10 years of the 20th century, 6 million people were killed over war or famine or more. Isn't that crazy? The, la the last 10 years of one of the most modern technologically advanced, happiest centuries in our world. Six million people died in that, just from wars and the, kind of the things that we talked about here. And so it shows us what our world is like. But here's something that this image and dramatic telling also tells us in the fifth seal. It shows us that Christians have died under this chaos over the years, that Christians have suffered under some oppressive rules in, over the years, that the, as they've been witnesses to God's kingdom, it led them into conflict with the ruling empire at times. 
And so verse 9 says, talks about the souls under the altar. This image of people who have died uh, in worship and witness to their king. And verse 10 talks about how they long for justice from God. God, when are you going to be just? When are you going to execute justice? But then this beautiful gift to them is they're all given white robes, this symbol of, of resurrection, this symbol of, of the new creation. It says, you know, rest at peace right now. God is at work. God is at work. And so even in the fifth seal, we see that over this, this big swipe of history, Christians have have been hit and hurt and even killed under these oppressive moments. And then the six seals actually moves to the world as the world implodes on itself, that it gets so bad that kings and uh, the elite and others actually cry out to be crushed by God's justice. Like verse 15 and 16 is very telling where the kings of the earth and the magnates and the generals and the rich and the powerful, but really everyone, slave and free, hid in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? It's almost as though as history or humanity implodes on itself, they're also saying, this is too much to bear. Just crush us. Just crush us. And this whole chapter just disturbs us. I don't know, if, it, if you're reading this with like a lightheartedness, or like that would be odd. It, it's, it's actually disturbing. It disturbs me as I read it. It disturbs us, but it wakes us up. It's kind of there to awaken us what's going on behind the curtain. And that last question leads to chapter 7. That last question, who can stand? Who can stand? Who can stand all this? And interestingly enough, there's this pause between the, seventh, the sixth and the seventh seal. And John sees this, this image, these two groups of, large groups of people, and seem to be really important piece in all of this. And first he hears about this group of people. Chapter 7, verse 4, he hears about 144,000 people. He says there that he says, um, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, those who were sealed by God. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed out of every tribe and the people of Israel. So we get this sense. Here's John who first sees this, he, or sorry, not sees, he hears about this number. Where does this number come from? And it's so hard to get fully, fully into it, but if you know 144, it's the multiplication of 12 and 12. And so the history of Israel in the church is 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. 12 times 12 is 144. And often in apocalyptic literature, when they added three zeros to that number to make it thousands, it was this it kind of significance, like, this is a big number. This is a big number. So all throughout history, God's people, God's Israel and the church, and in a sense, the full new Israel, those who are in Christ, God's covenant people in Israel and the church grafted in, the, the full people of God over history ref reflected in this number, the, the tribes of Israel, the apostles combined together in multitudes. So John hears that number first. But then in verse 9, he, he actually sees something. After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from every tribe, from all the peoples and the languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were also robed in white with palm branches in their hand, kind of reflecting what worship is. So John hears 144,000, then he sees, then he sees a multitude. And some people like to split these two groups of people 
But remember, there's not, not, not much is literal or linear in Revelation. And I would say the two descriptions are uh, they're the, they're the descriptions of the same group. Uh, and here's why I think that. Back in chapter 4 and 5, John hears about the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he sees the Lamb of God. He hears the lion about the lion, but he sees the Lamb. But who's the lion and the Lamb? It's Jesus. He hears this group of 144,000. He sees a multitude. Who's this group? It's God's sealed people over history. God's redeemed people over history coming through the chaos of the world, the tribulation of the world, that those who have remained faithful, as Jesus invites every church in Revelation 2 and 3 to remain faithful towards the end. And these white robes also given to them, just like the ones who suffered, who were the souls under the altars, they were given white robes in what? In promise of resurrection, in promise of new creation, in promise of God's future. So we have these two descriptions of the same group of people. And then the scene hits a moment of pause when, when, when John describes this because it's like this description of four angels, the four corners of the world. It's written there in just the first... I love it. It's an interesting description. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind could blow on the earth or sear against any tree. And it's almost as if in the midst of all the chaos and even God's permission under his authority to allow humanity to implode on himself, God's saying, wait, wait, wait. And the image of these four angels in the four corners saying, wait, just hold back the wind, hold back this. Why? In verse 3 of that chapter, it says, the living God tells the angels, do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we have marked the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. It's almost this idea, God's desire for everyone that would come to know him, for everyone to be rescued, for everyone that would respond to Jesus and join his great eternal family, have an opportunity. So God is just, but he's also kind. God is holy, but he's also patient. God judges because the evil of the world demands judgment, but God wants so all to be restored. So who can stand? How do we answer that question? Who can stand all this chaos? Those who faithfully follow Jesus. And whether even in witness they were, became martyrs for their faith, they still stand because God gives them white robes for future resurrection. Who can stand? The faithful stand. The faithful get through. So when we think about who will stand, those who have who followed Jesus, who have put their faith in Christ, who have who've, who've responded to Christ, somehow in the middle of all this, they are able to withstand, whether they live or die, because new creation is promised. And I love, we're not getting into the next chapters, but the beginning of chapter 8 just starts that seventh seal. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Remember, not everything's literal. It wasn't like on the clock, 30 minutes. But it was this moment of silence. Maybe, was it rest? Was it more patience? Was it anticipation? Some believe it was a moment to receive and listen to God's, to, to the words of Christ. Jesus is the word. Listen to his word. Listen to his promise. Listen to his future coming. Some believe it represents the prayers of the church, that the prayers of the church are at work in the middle of this 
So in silence, we bring ourselves before the Lord. We pray, we intercede for God's kingdom come, for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But whatever that seal is in an exact form, it's some kind of anticipation for God's final act, for God's final justice, for God's final turning to new creation. And it's, and it's kicked off with a moment with a significant moment of silence, to pause, to wait, to anticipate, to pray, to look forward to, to trust, to surrender, because God has everything in his hands. What do we do with all of this? What are, you came to church this morning, you're like, I wasn't coming for this this morning. <laughs> like a lot, and it's so much to say. And so even before we wrap up, I want to just invite you to send questions or things that don't seem unclear, and we, we can process it in future messages or on our blog or things like that. So please do that. Just email us and send us a note. But here's how I want to kind of bring this to a close, and I'd love um, in a couple of minutes, not just yet, but our worship team to get ready to come up, but I want us to remember Revelation 4 and 5 gave us a lens to, see, to read all of Revelation. What was the lens? The lens was Jesus. The lens was the Lamb. John John heard the lion, he saw the lamb that was slain. Revelation is a mini version of the Bible. It, like, there's nothing in Revelation that's new that wasn't in the Bible. The gospel that was preached is the gospel in Revelation. The, the, you know, the promise of new creation that was talked about is promised here in, in Revelation. So I want us to understand that the lens is still Jesus, the Lamb of God who sits on the throne. John heard a lion, he saw a lamb. La the lamb is the lens we interpret Revelation with. And remember this, the lamb never sits on the horses, on the four horses. Jesus is not the one who, who brings conquest and war and famine and death. That is the implosion of evil in our world and God's judgment towards that. So the lens is always that Jesus is the lamb of God and God sits on the throne. But here's, here's one, what I want to ask you guys this, this morning, because this is a question that like, you won't be able to fully answer in this moment, and neither will I, but we have to think about it. And it's this. Are you aware, am I aware, of the ways that I collaborate with the powers and systems in our world? It's so easy, especially when we make Revelation to be a timeline, like God's going to do this, this, and this, and then the end's going to come, and then he's going to rescue us. It's so easy when we look at it that way, only in a predictive lens, we, we really separate ourselves. We're like, that's not about me. That's about something else. But if it's a pastoral prophetic word to the churches and even to us, we have to stop and say, how do I collaborate with the powers and the systems of conquest and war and famine and death in our world? Have I ever, even in a small way, sat on one of those horses and wielded my power for that. N.T. Wright says, if God's new creation is to be brought to birth, the deepest ills of the world must be exposed and allowed to come out and be dealt with. See, what's happening here is the, also the inbreaking of God's kingdom. Jesus is the king. He's the lamb who was slain. He broke into our world with, you know, announcing God's kingdom. If God's new creation is going to come to birth, the deepest ills of our world must be exposed and they must be allowed to come out so they can be dealt with because God's a just God. So God will judge the world. 
But my question to, to me, I won't, you know what? I'll ask it to me. Do I let him judge me? Do I let him judge me? See, his judgment is also a rescue from me participating in the social evils in our world that will end up destroying me and the world. If I let God judge me and examine me, he actually rescues me from participating in this because that's just a path to death. That's just a path to destruction, not just for others, but for me. And it saddens me. Well, we have to be honest about this. I think it's so important that we're honest as Christians about church history. And that's my cue to end. The, do you ever, it, here's, a, here's a broad sweep of just church history's view, uh, uh, view and association with war. In the first century, the first three centuries, the church's view of war was no war. Uh, for four or five centuries afterwards, somehow the church evolved into a view of just war. And then later, in several centuries later, somehow the church evolved into holy war. Did you see that? Isn't that strange? Over a thousand years or 1,500 years, the church went from no war to just war to, oh, maybe this is a holy war. And some of those that were sent on the crusades were said, if you die on the battlefield, you know, killing those who are coming against us, you will immediately go to heaven and find your peace. That made their war holy. All of a sudden, they attached a holiness to war. Previous to that, they only got to making war justifiable. Previous to that, they're like, God doesn't love war. That's, now, we could just look at that a trajectory in our own lives. That, that was a very simplistic uh, review of that, and there's a whole bunch of nuance in the middle of that that we could talk about. But that always, when I read that I, and, and I think about my own life, I'm like, how, how have I sometimes evolved from this is not the way of Jesus to I can justify this for this cause to I'm going to make this act holy and just put my stamp of Jesus on it. Do we ever do that in our own lives with other things? So let's be mindful. Let's let God judge us, examine us, because we can sometimes be participants. But here's the promise for you and me. The promise is, as God's people, we can stand through, stand through this. Whether it's history, whether it's our lives, whether it's the next season, whether it's towards new creation, we can stand through. Why? Here's why. Not, not just because of what we read in these two chapters, because Jesus already died. Jesus already went to the cross. Jesus already resurrected. Jesus is already the promise of new, cre new creation. And that promise is for you and for me. So we can stand through because Jesus already triumphed in the cross, in the resurrection. And he will fully triumph in new creation. And at that point, as it describes here and quotes Isaiah and later in the book as well, I love this, verse 17, for the lamb at the center of the throne, just listen, will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. That was a prophetic promise from Isaiah that ends the book of Revelation and is found here in worship right in the middle of these seals. You can stand through because when you follow Jesus and trust Jesus. And I want to end with worship today. As I, we weren't going to, but then I, we were singing that last song, and it just made me realize when you read through Revelation, there's so much worship in it. And even in chapter 7, there's three moments of worship. Prayer and worship is Revelation's response to a chaotic world. It's not like more violence to fix the violence. 
No, prayer and worship is our response to a world that's gone crazy, to a chaotic world at war. We read from worship in heaven, salvation belongs to our God, blessing and honor and wisdom belong to our God. They were before the throne of God and worshiped him day and night. The saints, the souls were under the altar in heaven and then later they sit in silence for 30 minutes, but whatever the time is, why? Because our response to the chaos of our world is not more chaos, is prayer and worship. It actually matters when we pray and when we intercede and when we are present with God's presence. And this becomes in our world an uncivil worship. It means that we work, when we worship King Jesus, we're, telling, we're saying my life is not governed by other kings. When we worship King Jesus, my life is not governed by those four horsemen. When we worship Jesus, my life is not governed by those ideologies. Jesus is my king. And so we're going to pray, and uh, I want to leave you with this one last line, and it's on the screen. And I, this is the, the encouraging line here as we, as we end this. The lamb we worship is the lamb who will shepherd us through. Amen? The lamb we worship and the lamb who intercedes for us, Jesus, is the lamb who will shepherd us through all the tensions in our world now and into the future. I invite you to stand as we pray. And this song that we sang before, I think, will help us root us in this beautiful truth. Jesus, the Lamb. We build our life on Him. We build our hope on Him. There is no one like Him. This is the lens of revelation. Jesus, the Lamb. Jesus, the King. Jesus, our Savior. God, as we just take this next moment to be present to your presence, to come back to this posture of worship after we've walked through this dramatic telling, unveiling what some of the chaos in our world looks like or the sources of it, God. Lord, we want to come back to this posture of prayer and worship because we long to be rooted in you. We declare that the Lord is our shepherd. We lack nothing that Jesus is our King and therefore we will stand through that Jesus, the Lamb of God who took the sins of the world is our Savior and you show us that his way is the way for us to walk. So God, we just end in this note of worship and dependence and rootedness in who Jesus is. God, I just pray for anyone here today that is wrestling with the chaos in our world or maybe the chaos in their own life. Lord, may they know the promise of resurrection is for them as they immerse themselves and trust and respond to Jesus in faith. Oh God, for some of us that just weep and struggle for the chaos in our world globally, and we wonder, we wonder, God, when will there be an end? When will this cycle be broken? When will... Uh, you know, war and violence and famine and death and oh God, how much longer will it turn on itself? Help us to trust that you are still sovereign. You are still over us in this world and that we will stand through because of your promise. We're getting through to new creation. We thank you for that.
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.